Welcome to Issues in Rural Crime and Society. This is your host, Dr. Kyle Mulroney, and today we're joined by Distinguished Professor of Criminology, Rob White. Rob is an expert in green criminology and really a pioneer in the area. Uh, So in this podcast, we explore what green criminology is, some of Rob's research in the area, but I think most importantly for the purposes of this podcast, we apply it in the context of rural criminology and really look at the overlaps between the two. Enjoy today's episode. I want to kind of take this conversation on a bit of a journey, starting with um, the issue of green criminology and environmental criminology, finding that bridge there between the two and rural criminology, and then maybe talking up some of the key issues in that space, if you don't mind, Rob. You're a pioneer in, in, in green criminology. Can you maybe spell it out for, for our listeners and viewers a little bit about what that is, what it entails, and maybe some of your work in the, the area? Okay. I, I, green criminology relates basically to the, to the notion of environmental harm and environmental crime. Now, typically, we don't define crime in strictly legal terms, and that's because a lot of harms to the environment are perfectly legal. We pollute by license for example. So air and water is polluted on license. So that's something that we would see in some circumstances that deserves to be called criminal. Um, Also, those who determine the laws are are nation states or states uh, and provincial governments. Um, And often they do stuff that's against the interests of the environment. So we can think here of the tar tar sands in Alberta and Canada, where basically it's devastating the environment, it's impacting upon indigenous communities and so on, but it's perfectly legal. And then you look at the companies and particularly transnational uh, companies, corporations and their impacts and how they influence whether something is perceived to be a crime or whatever. So we, in green criminology, we do have a, an expansive definition of, of harm and crime. Uh, for me, it crystallizes around three key issues relating to eco-justice. So first, we have what I call environmental justice that deals with humans, and that deals with the state of the environment in relation to, to, to human communities. Uh, there's, in that space, we would talk about environmental racism or the class dimensions of being cited, situated in un, unsafe and unpleasant environments and so on. But the, so the first idea is that environmental justice deals with humans and the victims are humans. The second area for green criminology, as I conceive it, in terms of eco-justice, is ecological justice. And ecological justice deals with ecosystems, with the environment as such. And here you've got related concepts like the rights of nature and so on, and often social groups, uh, environmental action groups that want to protect the forests. So in Tasmania, we have the, the Wilderness Society basically was constituted because it was trying to protect and conserve the Tasmanian forests. So ecological justice deals with ecological systems, uh, ecosystems, and so on. The third type of justice that we discuss is species justice. And initially, a a large part of that discussion centered on non-human animals. And the big debate in relation to non-human animals was welfare versus justice. But increasingly, when we talk about species justice, we're also talking about plants, particularly when we talk about biodiversity and the importance of biodiversity. So those are the three key strands of eco-justice that, that around which we hang a whole bunch of different kinds of issues. So environmental justice dealing with humans, ecological justice dealing with ecosystems, and species justice dealing with non-human animals and plants. Uh, 
Then falling off of that, of course, you have a wide range of different kinds of harms to the environment. They relate to pollution and contamination. They relate to carbon emissions and climate change. They relate to the legal and illegal trade in uh, flora and fauna, that is non-human animals and, and plants. Uh, so there's different dimensions to the issues that we're looking at. But at the end of the day, our concern is not only with humans as victims, but the non-human environmental entity. So it can include rivers, as well as plants, as well as uh, koalas and kangaroos and so on. Um, those are our concerns. The key perpetrators of the harm are, include individuals, of course, but really in terms of the scale of harm, it does tend to be nation states, uh, provincial and state governments, and corporations, large corporations. And I guess regardless of whether it's um, sort of legally condoned harm or it's out and out criminality, the impacts can be um, can be quite detrimental for many people. But the the delay in the impact can be um, can uh, there could be a delay in that impact. And I think of two examples: the um, the work that you've been doing on the Murray Darling and the impacts of what happens in Queensland or New South Wales on farmers at the mouth of the Murray in South Australia. Uh, or if you're thinking some outright criminality, the illegal sand mining in places like India to, to, uh, to feed that burgeoning middle class and the demand for glass and concrete to build and build and build. Uh, and those people who are well and truly uh, downstream are going to have major impacts when all of that sand is pulled out of the, uh, the river, perhaps hundreds of kilometres away. Well, it, um, at the end of the day, a large part of the harm that we're talking but have to do with extraction from so we take stuff out of the Amazon we take stuff out of the forests of Tasmania we take fish out of the sea so there's a whole bunch of extraction from the environment there's the contamination of the environment so we waste put waste and pollutants and contaminants into the environment so we destroy our river systems our lakes and so on and the other thing is that we actually change and pervert the the very basis of nature itself so for example genetically modified organisms uh, and at the moment, we have the phenomenon of flexi crops. There are four key flexi crops worldwide that we use. Things like corn, soybean, palm oil. These are, are the flexi crops that are in big demand worldwide, but they tend to be also hooked into GMO pr production so that basically the, the majority of the soy that's produced in the world is genetically modified, likewise with maize or corn. So we've got these conjunction of things, the way in which we pollute the environment, the way we keep extracting things from the environment and the way we pervert the environment itself. Uh, so those are dimensions of, of some of the harms. But of course, then you say, well, where does this happen? It happens where the stuff is. It ain't happening in the cities because the stuff ain't there. <laughs> so if you're going to talk about mining in Australia, it, it's not going to happen in the in the center in the urban centres. It happens in the the outback areas, in the more remote areas. If you're going to talk about forestry, it doesn't happen in in Hobart. It happens in the wilderness areas. Uh, if you're going to talk about fishing, it happens on the open seas. Uh, we're fishing out our lakes. Uh, we're we're polluting our waters through our also through aquaculture. Um, if you look at farming, farming now is getting bigger and bigger. So we've moved into mega scale farming that is actually absolutely having huge impacts on the environment. And if you look at places like New Zealand, uh, the, the nit nitrates going into the, into the water systems and everything, it's actually destroying 
the, the basis of life itself in many parts of New Zealand, which is meant to be the clean green place. So when we talk about nature, when we talk about extraction and contamination and perversion of nature, it really is occurring in precisely the areas that we're concerned with in terms of rural criminology. Yeah, and, and close to you, of course, it's the impacts of that highly intensive salmon farming in, in Tasmania using, well, for want of a better word, public waters, you know, three big companies. Um, and I was looking at some stuff uh, only a, a few weeks ago about the massive impacts that that's having on the biodiversity in those waterways and all of the, the spoil that occurs from that intensive farming in those, those public waters. And, and the thing is, there's 10 key countries and 11 all up that are now engaged in salmon uh, farming. And if you go to Norway and Scotland and Canada in particular, you'll see that there's a whole range of issues there, uh, especially in those three countries, because you've got wild salmon populations that are also being affected by the farmed salmon. So there's contamination, genetic contamination, contamination and pollution of the waters. The, you have to look at what the fish are actually being fed and that varies depending on the company, actually. In some cases, you're using smaller fish, big bulk organic masses of fish to feed salmon to put on somebody's dinner plate. In other places, you're, you're literally mulching chicken parts. So what you're eating, in effect, when you see that salmon on your plate, it's not salmon, you're eating chicken. <laughs> because it's the beaks and, and, the, and the, the feet of chicken and so on. So, but again, a lot of this stuff we don't know unless you are on, the spot because things like salmon farming don't occur necessarily in the, the built up areas, the urban areas, they, they, they're in the, the river systems outside of the, the metropolitan areas. Mm. Um, but, it, and this is happening of course, worldwide. Rob, one thing that strikes me in all of this is the role of capital. And I know you talk about that in your work in environmental criminology, green criminology generally, but there's almost that tension there, particularly in rural spaces that have seen economic decline, um, are experiencing economic anxiety and these types of things, and the attraction of these types of harmful industries to these locales that feel left behind, feel um, opportunities are lacking and things like that. So how do you, how do you square that or how do, how, do you, how do you manage that? We have to understand it and analyze it. And basically what we do know is that a small number of the same transnational companies look at the earth as a whole and they just pick where they're going to go and they make their deals with with national and state government provincial governments as with the Alberta town tar sands for example in Canada they make the deals uh, with different levels of government and they offer the promise of more jobs but more often than not that promise is false because there ain't many jobs and the impact is huge mm -hmm. and, and will be lasting. So for example, in Australia, we have the proposal uh, by the Adani company for a, 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 a huge, the big, world's biggest coal mine. Now it's ridiculous. Uh, it would contribute to carbon emissions and climate change and, and further global warming and so on. Uh, it wouldn't create as many jobs as they keep trying to market, but in fact it wouldn't. And at the end of the day, you're traversing indigenous lands, you're, you're polluting the, the countryside, uh, you're using an enormous amount of water as part of the production process and so on. So the lasting environmental and spiritual effects are enormous. We're finding the similar kind of things in places like New South Wales, where basically the governments are privileging uh, gas production and fracking and these kinds of things uh, to the potential detriment of 
of the water systems. Uh, and basically, you're going to deny farmers clean water into the future in a period where worldwide, we're now starting to see major scarcities of fresh water. So these are the kinds of things. But of course, it's driven by profit. And at the end of the day, this is why we need a, a very concerted movement against the big companies. Now, the thing is, when you actually do an analysis, and again, if you, if you have a global analysis, you'll find it's the same companies. We used to talk about the seven sisters as the, the oil companies, but you can do a very similar exercise with say agribusiness. We know Monsanto, for example. Um, and then when we go into who's buying up land in places like the United States, well, the, apparently the biggest landowner now in the United States is Bill Gates. <laughs> so we can actually name these billionaires then we have to question a couple of things. One is why are they buying up all the land and how are they using the land? And secondly, do we really want decisions that affect us to be in the hands of one or two key people uh, across these different kinds of economic sectors? Yeah. So at the end of the day, there's a lot of discussion that we need to have about the, the power and interests that are driving policies that are actually really negatively impacting upon our rural and remote communities. And it could extend at some point well beyond the planet Earth as well. I was just listening today about yeah, the, yeah. the fight between Elon Musk or the ongoing tussle between Elon Musk and George Bezos and their competing uh, space um, endeavours and whatnot. You know, yeah. Probably yeah. at some point in time we'll be having the same debate about billionaires and Mars. <laughs> I, saw, I saw a funny meme today. It's that meme of that guy who's hiding behind the trees rubbing his hands and they put something else that he's looking at each meme and it usually says who that guy is. And in this meme, it said it was Nestle and it was uh, below it was the water that they're finding on Mars, right? So it's like looking for more and more and more sources of, of water to take and now moving out, out to Mars for that. And I suppose part of the point of all this is that, and people living in, in country areas know this immediately, that our water is diminishing. The quality of our lakes and our rivers is diminishing. We're finding algae blooms destroying. We're finding fish dying in their millions. Uh, and so we know something's wrong. We know that the droughts are increasing. We know that climate disruption is occurring with really quite intense storm events. Uh, and this is happening everywhere, really. Mm. Um, and what people don't necessarily understand is that climate disruption is, the, is a, a consequence of the climate change stemming from global warming. So that, for example, if as the oceans warm up in the northern hemisphere, it's putting a squeeze on the Arctic in such a way that you're going to have Arctic outbursts where, where now you get snow in Texas. Mm. And you think, well, hang on, aren't we supposed to be talking about global warming? Well, yes, we can, because it's the warming of the oceans that are creating this kind of Arctic breakout. If you go to the U United Kingdom, if you look at a map, you'll find that England is more or less parallel with Scandinavia, but it's got such a different climate that's going to change mm. because the, it's the water currents, the ocean currents that have moderated the, the climatic conditions in the United Kingdom. So ultimately that's going to change as well. So there's yeah. just a whole bunch of stuff in many different parts of the world. Uh, they're going to keep coming under pressure. Now, the other thing I should mention about global extraction and, and contamination of resources is that Often it's the indigenous peoples worldwide who are the, the key targets for a lot of this extraction. So if you go to the Amazon, it's often the indigenous local people who are trying to resist 
the, the intrusions on their lands by the, the big companies that have the armed militias and so on that are killing people on the ground. And if you go to the Amazon, a lot of people, activists are being killed. If you go to Honduras, uh, the, the environmental activists are being killed either by the state directly or by these, the militias that are, that are fighting on behalf of the companies. Uh, so indigenous peoples worldwide are under threat because often they're living in precisely the last enclaves of so-called pristine environment that the, the big companies want to take from us. And for those countries, those are those sort of the brick economies, you know, Brazil with, um, and uh, Russia, India and China, you know, those developing countries, you know, they'll sit back and say, well, it's all very well for the first world to say, oh, we've created a problem and now you have to come along for the ride when, yeah. they, they, when they themselves have aspirations to have a burgeoning middle class, to have access to the same levels of sort of protein for you know, consumption and uh, those sorts of things. And so you end up with those populist governments, uh, in the case of, of Brazil, who just, um, it's anything goes. You know, the, the fires in the Amazon is a case in point. And, and the tragedy, of course, is that the damage we're creating today is lasting. And in some cases, it's everlasting. So, for example, there's one million species that are threatened with extinction as we speak. Now, let's just pause there. The word extinction means gone forever. So there's one million species that are about to be gone forever. And, and, and when it's gone, they're gone. Uh, we can't bring them back. Uh, it's not science fiction. We're not gonna go back in time and it's not science fiction in terms of we're gonna get genetic traces and, and regrow a million species. They are gone forever. And this is the stakes. This is the level of the stakes that we're playing with in terms of the planet. And that's why I, we argue, it's certainly in green criminology uh, and in other forms of critical criminology that you gotta take the, the power and the control out of the hands of those who are destroying the planet. And we've got to talk about the public interest. We've got to talk about social needs. And you've got to talk about democratization of decisions over energy, over water, over air, and over land. But therein lies the rub, though, isn't it? You know, how do you actually uh, engender any change when you know, you know, there'll be people who are, you know, to coin a phrase, have the arse out of their pants and highly populist governments in, in charge. You can't, it's not as though you can change the government when you need to change that groundswell of, of support to overcome some of those challenges and barriers to just day-to-day -day existence. So how, yeah. I mean, here is the problem. How do you go about, change? it's not just legislative change or political regime change. How do you actually, how are we actually going to do something about this so that we don't have, um, you know, that million species um, being, becoming extinct, the impacts on, on bees and, their, and the benefits of their pollination, all those challenges that are facing. What do we, you know, if you have a crystal ball, you know, if, if there was some sort of magic wand that you could wave, what, what could we possibly do? Well, you know, the two public service, at least in Australia, two of the things that are very popular with people on the ground, one is having some form of national health system and a national broadcaster like the ABC uh, because it is seen as something that serves the people. And so there is support for publicly provided universal services. So universal healthcare is absolutely supported in, in certainly in Australia, in the UK and, and Canada and other places. The other thing that's very much supported in the opinion polls is let's tax the rich. They don't pay tax anyway. 
So there's two, these are transitional types of policies in a sense. Uh, they take us in the direction that we need to go. And that is that we need more, the provision of universal services across the board because that takes the, the, the dog eat dog element out of people doing stuff that will destroy the environment because basically you'll be taken care of. Mm. And the other thing is that from the point of view of fairness and equity, people say, look, it's not fair that the billionaires ain't paying no tax anyway. The big companies are getting tax breaks. And there's a recent reports, uh, both by United Nations uh, uh, um, agencies, but also recently in Australia by um, an Australian organization that come out and say that we are still subsidizing the fossil fuel industries. We're subsidizing the fossil fuel industries to the tune of billions of dollars. And you think, hang on, we, we've known and we've signed off since 1991, the Rio Convention, virtually every country in the world, including the United States, which is significant, signed off and said, yes, there's climate changes occurring. And secondly, that it's human caused. And thirdly, that it's basically carbon emissions. So we've known since 1991, officially. Uh, and yet the governments today who are talking about the Paris Accords and you know, what do we do, need to do to reduce carbon emissions, we are actively using our taxpayer money to subsidize to the tune of billions of dollars, the fossil fuel industries that are destroying our planet. So I think that in terms of the politics of, of social change, we can be very grounded and, and most people at a common sense level will agree that, look, we've got to do something. We've got to step in and we don't have the resources. Hello. Sorry. Just yeah, sorry. It's just a delay cut out. Are you back? Yeah. yeah. Sorry. You might just want to repeat that last, that last statement. It just buffered and we lost you there. I don't know where it was <laughs> and what I was saying. Uh, I'm saying that they, at a grassroots common sense level, there's a lot of support to tax the rich, to take the money that they've built up on our backs and put it into things that count for us. It's yeah. just things like universal healthcare. Uh, let's talk about a, a general income support for everybody and so on. We're living in completely different times. Uh, we need bold, big visions of the yeah. kind of future that we want, but that future has to be inclusive. Uh, I think at the moment, we're moving in completely the opposite direction. One thing that, that we haven't touched on fully that overlaps, I think, seriously with the rural, especially if you look at kind of Western rural spaces, especially the United States and Canada, is the issue of politics in all of this and how climate change is not a scientific issue, but a political issue. And then where you sit on climate change very much depends on where you sit on the political spectrum. And so how do you, how do you bridge that divide, especially in rural spaces, which in the context I'm talking about are overwhelmingly conservative or Republican or something like that. How do you communicate these messages of short-term gain for long-term loss and of, of trying to show these or, or communicate these types of harms and um, interests uh, when there's that, serious, serious political fault line across a number of social problems, but especially the climate change. I think one of the key things in terms of the rural areas is water. And I think water is a linchpin. It's what we're going to fight over. It's, it's going to be the source of conflict, uh, increasing conflict as we move into the future. Um, 
And in places like Australia, uh, in relation to the Murray Darling, for example, uh, we sell it, we sell licenses to it. And you think, hang on, this is a public good. It mm. should not be put on the market and bought up as if it's a private tradable investment. Water needs to be seen as part of the commons. And I think that over time, what we're seeing is, particularly for small farmers, and this is the divide, right? Yeah. Small farmers see that water is important for them. It should be seen as part of the commons. That's very different from the large agricultural companies. It's also very different from the investment companies that are investing and buying up water rights. So the moment you privatize water, the moment you make it a marketable commodity is the moment that you start to lose control. So I yeah. think what you're gonna find at the grassroots is that more and more farmers particularly, but not just farmers, but those living in rural areas are gonna say, this is wrong. We can see the impact. Yeah. We can see the impact on the land. We can see the impact on the, the species, the, the animals and plants that are around us. We can see the changes. Uh, and we're in tune with nature. Because yeah, we live yeah. in these areas, we work in these areas. And yeah, so yeah. basically some of the, the key people now moving into the climate justice domain, in fact, are people from the rural areas. Exactly. I was just about to say that. I think it's Tanya Howard here at UNE who does some research on, you know, the role of these communities and farmers as stewards of the land and that they feel connected to the land. And part of that is protecting the land. And so that may come at odds with political values and things like that when it comes to the climate change fight. But I guess the way you're saying is once that fight is brought to their door um, and it becomes a more obvious battle of the haves versus the have nots, that's when we might see a little bit more political action. Absolutely. And, and look, and let's be clear, this is happening really quickly. Mm. So to give an example, the east coast of Tasmania, the waters along the east coast of Tasmania are amongst the most rapidly warming waters on the planet. Now, what, that's, what that means is that in northern Tasmania, off the east coast, we're finding a whole range of new exotic species. So fish we've never seen before in these waters. The other implication of that is that along the east coast, as you keep going further down the coast of Tasmania, which is a large island, uh, it, you'll start to hit the salmon farms. Mm. And the, the whole point of salmon farming is that it's meant to be in a, it's a cold water production process. So mm. as those waters increase in, in temperature, they're going to affect these large companies and their salmon operations. So there's a lot of stuff, but I, I want to emphasize this is happening really quickly. And, and the bushfires that we've had in 2020 in Australia give an indication of how dramatic the changes are gonna be. And, and there were billions of animals that died in those bushfires uh, and thousands and thousands of hectares of land that was destroyed, um, a number of human lives that were lost and so on. And this is, unfortunately, it's not a once-off event. This is the beginning of dramatic changes that will escalate in terms of the severity as we move forward. And basically people on the ground, they're gonna get that, they get that. Yeah. Uh, they're, on, they're on the front line. The trouble is that, and we discussed this, uh, touched on this a little bit earlier, is the political representation, isn't it? And when the people who uh, proclaim to be representatives of rural spaces or farmers are siding more and more with the big companies, the big um, coal and other mining operations, rather than the small individual farmers, there's a, there's a problem. And we see that, we see that almost on a daily basis here in Australia, those, those loud voices that uh, smother the many voices. 
but uh, that, with that politics is, is fracturing. Uh, basically, people have had it with, the, with the, the mainstream parties full stop, almost everywhere. But if you look at Australia as an example, uh, the National Party is losing every day. It's losing legitimacy in the countryside because it's not speaking for the ma majority of people who live in the countryside. Uh, so what you're seeing now is the rise of independence and alternative small parties that over time are going to gain traction. Uh, and, and basically, until we go back to the traditional... See, the thing about the traditional country parties is that they were basically socialist agrarians, mm. right? Yes. They, they wanted to support their people. And if you go to places like Saskatchewan, where the, the origins of the CCA, yeah. Commonwealth yeah. Cooperative Federation, this was basically socialist farmers saying, yeah, yeah we're going to fight the Eastern banks. Uh, we're going to introduce, and they did, um, uh, start off, I think, with car insurance, and then it went to medical or health insurance. Uh, they said, yeah, we want... We want something that's going to protect us and our land and our livelihoods um, collectively. Mm. Um, and they were unabashed about it. Uh, and I think what's happened is that these old fashioned, and these were often with, had conservative values, but their politics yeah. was basically socialist in nature in terms yeah. of wanting to prop up communities as a whole. Um, and I think what you're going to see is that the candidates, particularly independent candidates and small party candidates are going to start singing from that song sheet. And, and that's where you're going to, you'll see a shift, I think a fairly massive shift in the vote patterns uh, in, in, in the near future. Yeah, I guess if people want to, uh, to read a little bit more about that, then uh, there's a couple of chapters in our edited Emerald book by Nick Economou and by Beck Strating as well that touch on those, uh, those politics in the rural from different perspectives, but, um, but it'll be uh, interesting reading for people who are interested in that. Mm. Yeah. I'm just wondering, just at this point, uh, and, and thinking uh, further around green criminology, uh, are there some seminal works, uh, yours included, that, uh, that you could recommend to people yeah. who want to find out more? I think there's a, there's a variety. Oh, look, green criminology has exploded in the last 15, 20 years. So there's, there's a, quite a variety of different things. I think the best thing to do, if, you, if you're looking for general texts, just look at uh, introductory textbooks on, on green criminology. Uh, myself and Di Heckenberg have written a book, Green Criminology. Uh, there's also um, textbooks by Angus Nurse uh, in the UK and Matthew Hall in the US. There's Michael Lynch and, and co-authors have published a book on green criminology. So there's different introductory textbooks. If you want to look at wildlife crime, then probably look at people like Tanya Wyatt in her book on wildlife crime and criminology and her work with uh, Angus Nurse. If you're gonna look at pollution crime, you could look at some, the work that's come out of Belgium uh, on, on e-waste and, and waste. Uh, if the other thing that's happening with uh, green criminology is it's become a truly global project. So you can look at the work of Re Rebecca Wong in Hong Kong in terms of the illegal wildlife trade. Uh, you can look at Kyle's work in Vietnam and the, the timber industry and illegal logging. Uh, you can go to Mexico and there's, there's now green criminology books out of Mexico that talk about environmental harms in Mexico. Uh, so we've, we've become a, a global community um, talking about, and again, in many of these places, if, you, if you're talking about Vietnam in uh, Mexico and so on, you're often talking about the more rural areas where a lot of the stuff occurs. There's a huge literature on illegal poaching of wildlife relating to South and Central America. 
the parrot trade and other kinds of bird trade and so on. And the way in which local rural community people feed into that trade because it's a, it's a bit of additional income. And it's generally seen as a bit of uh, rural folk crime. So not really a crime, but it's a way to make some extra income. So there's, there's a lot of stuff. Um, and if people are interested in green criminology, again, the best thing to do is to just go into a subject area and have a look in that subject area. So there's plenty on, on pollution. There's climate change. Uh, criminology is another area of criminology. Uh, for those who are interested in issues of colonialism and, and imperialism as a global phenomenon, there's David Goya's work on Southern uh, green criminology. Uh, many different writers today uh, from many different parts of the world. Uh, Ragnild Soland writing on species justice in, in the context of Norway and Sweden and looking at say the wolves population and, and the justifications for the killing of wolves in, the, in those countries. So there's the, the literature is extensive. I wonder if we can just shift direction to slightly now, but uh, still touching on some of the work that you've been doing with um, a group of different um, different scholars, a few different articles which uh, have either been published recently or uh, or uh, hopefully soon to be published, and that's around issues around animal activism and the interrelationship between those activist concerns and rural life. And I just wondered whether you could speak to that a little bit and perhaps touch on some of the work that you have been doing in that space. Well, it gets very complicated very quickly um, because there's already debates within the animal activism camps between welfare um, activism and rights activism. So there's political divisions within the, the animal rights movements uh, as to what we're trying to do and so on. And critiques by say the animal liberationists would be critical of the Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals because one, one is talking about the welfare of animals uh, but not necessarily excluding them from human use. The other one wants to exclude animals, non-human animals from human use and so on. So there's those kinds of already existing tensions and divisions. And then on top of that, you're, you're now starting to see some an animal activism moving out of the cities and moving into the, to the countryside. So you have so-called invasions of farms um, by activists which is very confronting to, to farmers who live and work on these farms. Um, and even though the activists say, well, look, we're not targeting your family. We're not targeting your farmhouse. We're actually targeting your farm operations. It's pretty intimidating if there's dozens of people all dressed in a particular way, sometimes masked up, um, coming onto your property uh, to, to do a protest. So, and often the people who are targeted are, are people trying to eke out a living. <laughs> They're not necessarily the big companies. And so what you have is this, it's, it's partly a question of the, the practicalities of, of activism, but it's also partly about the representation of, of what the issues are. Because the way in which these kinds of issues, and, and the vegan activists have legitimate concerns that they want to express, the farmers have legitimate interests that they want to protect, but this is being reproduced at the media level and the myth level as being a, a fight between the vegans and the farmers, when in fact, those who actually control the pastoral industries and the agricultural industries tend to be the large corporations. Um, and the, what has transformed farming much more than the threat from the activists, what has transformed farming is the intrusion of big dollars and mega farms into the industries. And they have the vertical and horizontal integration of production so they control the pesticides, they control 
the, the final markets. They control the seeds. Uh, they control the farm equipment. Uh, and, and that's transforming the farming landscape in a way that's much more profound and arguably damaging than, than the occasional intrusion by vegan activists into the farm areas. Yeah, and, and controlling the, uh, uh, the uh, trade agreements around the world too. Uh, so just recently in the context of Brexit and potential um, free trade agreement between the United States and Great Britain, a lot of British farmers very concerned that there's going to be this mass um, importation of, of uh, American farm chicken, for instance, without the same quality standards that they have enjoyed as members of the European Union. And the same issues go with GMO production. Mm. So when you have, say, in Tasmania, we have bans on GMO production of, of certain types of, well, in fact, I think of everything, uh, moratorium on, on genetically modified organisms being used in our food production. That's important to us because we want to be seen, we want to sell what we produce here as being clean and green uh, and not genetically altered. Um, but depending on free trade agreements and so on, they can undermine those kinds of protections. Uh, so there's a, there's a whole bunch of issues at a global level as well as local level that certainly we have to take into account. And it, and it gets back to price points too, doesn't it? I was talking to a friend recently and you know, he, he's, he's not struggling at all. And so he'll uh, go and get um, grain fed beef from the local organic butcher's shop and, uh, and buy eggs and bread and whatnot at the farmer's market and whatnot. But for a great many people, whether they're urban or, or, or rural located, it's the cheapest, uh, the cheapest cut of meat from the cheapest supermarket yeah, or the cheapest yeah. dozen of uh, cage farmed eggs, which, uh, because it's, you know, money matters. And that was one of the things generally, a lot of environmentalism, especially capitalist oriented environmentalism reeks of elitism. And so, you know, you tell everyone to have a Tesla or, you know, what, what, what's your saying, Alistair, the, the city bus doesn't come by their front door every morning. There are, is no public transportation in rural spaces. And so a lot of this stuff that we demand of people, we demand of the people who are able to acquiesce those demands tend to live in cities. And so we forget about those who, who do not on a lot of these, these areas. So again, it goes back to rural buy-in uh, to these types of environmental uh, behaviors or actions, particularly when, again, there's that, that uh, notion, true or not, at least short-term gain can be found in a lot of environmental exploitation. And, but, but it also works the opposite way. In environmental innovation, can be a protective factor. So for example, in, in various places in Australia, uh, we have new techniques of farming that, that in a sense go back in time so that you, you do plant the weeds, you, you do let the weeds grow and so on because they're protective in times of drought. Yeah. They protect your, your water systems, your river systems and so on. The notion of permaculture actually had its origins in Tasmania. And that's, that's the idea of integrating a whole range of different species in such a way that it's self-contained and self-reproducing. But it's not simply self-contained and self-reproducing as an ecological system. It's protective against things like climate change. So what's happening slowly, and it needs to speed up, is that more and more farmers are realize, realizing that localized production in particular ways, rather than homogenized production uh, that's monoculture, monoculture based, um, which is very destructive and it's not protective. Uh, but if you have diversity in your production and you produce in particular ways, it's actually protective and you'll, and you'll do better. That's yeah. got implications for how we eat as well.
I think a lot of this though goes back to what you talked about earlier about the wider social safety net and what's important to us as a society. And you know, this one thing I often think of is one's capacity to buy local is very much dependent upon their bottom line and their income really, because I mean, even here in Armadale, when I buy local, it means I'm buying double what I would pay on Amazon. And I do that because I can, a lot of people cannot. Um, so I think that really nicely brings the conversation full back full circle. What can we do to ensure that people can afford a local living uh, and can afford these types of lifestyle behaviors that can hopefully be detached from one's place in the economic spectrum? And, and I suppose, look, that, we can answer that in many different ways. But one of the things that we have learned worldwide from COVID is that where there's a will, there is a way. We've learned that. And basically, if you recognize a social need, uh, governments are more than happy to spend billions. And so the question- It's a really today, good point, yeah. yeah. Now the question today is, okay, spend your billions and spend it on us. Yeah, I think uh, someone made a comment about, where is it in Ohio, they're giving away $5 million for um, people who get their vaccines. It's a lottery system to get your vaccine. I think someone's tweet was, <laughs> what about hunger and poverty? Like, what, where was the 5 million for that? You know, and it's, you're right, where there's a will, there's a way, just that will is applied very strategically. That's right. And, and that's why I think at the end of the day, this is really about the politics of the environment and it's about the politics of rurality because uh, where you live and where you want to live very much depends upon your livelihood. Uh, your livelihood depends upon the environment and these are all intertwined and at the end of the day what we need to do is prioritize people not profit and it sounds like a slogan in fact it would be a slogan and it is a slogan but in fact it makes sense and it's never made more sense because we know in the course of the last 18 months, during the course of the pandemic, those who made money were the billionaires. And we know this empirically, we know we've got all the facts and figures that the, the leading people who made money in the pandemic were the billionaires. All the rest of us suffered financial loss. So the question is, there's something really skewed and it's not simply at a country level, it's on a global level, something no, yeah. really skewed when we have the billionaires making money off of our pain. And, and making so, so much money that uh, they can afford a 500 million, a half a billion dollar yacht that needs a, a separate yacht to accompany it to take the helicopter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, just, uh, it's just incredible, isn't it? Yeah. And, and what's incredible is that we know these people by name. Yeah. That's the power, right? So we know Elon Musk, we know Bill Gates, we know Rupert Murdoch. The fact that Jeff this Bezos. indicates the power and the wealth that these people have, uh, but it also indicates the solution. <laughs> and basically we need to take it off. Yeah, interesting. I mean, it's another conversation moving into white collar crime and things like that. But once, once corporations become more powerful than government and government becomes dependent upon corporations instead of vice versa. And, uh, you know, you look at the, the different corporations that we just named and, and their role in privatized industry. I mean, you know, um, Elon Musk's company, why am I not uh, coming up with it? SpaceX, you know, is, is more advanced than NASA. What does that tell you? It's, yeah. it's fascinating. But look, the counterweight to, to this concentrated power is the power of the movements. And imagine this. It was only two years ago that a 15, 16-year-old Swedish schoolgirl stood up in front of her school and said, I'm on strike. This is a climate strike. 
Within one year after Greta Thunberg did that, there were six million people worldwide doing it. Now there's even more. So it shows that people power still packs a punch. It still can. Yeah. And we need things like the climate strikes. We need things like uh, Extinction Rebellion and so on. But we also need grassroots activity on other dimensions. So for example, the farmers are starting to organize against the gas producers, for example, in, in many places around the world. Uh, we need to protect our lands, uh, the indigenous lands, the farming, farmers' lands, the, the fishers' lands. And I say lands because often the fishers are in inland lakes and, and river systems and so on. They're not simply in the oceans. Uh, and basically, people realize that we have to mobilize to protect what we have. Mm. You talk about people power. One thing that I've really been struggling with and thinking about is the way in which capital is directly invested in social movements these days. And uh, it may be my conspiratorial hat on here a little bit, but the way in which that fractures a lot of social movements down to individualized identities. And what you see a lot is a uh, amnesia or forgetting about what they share in common. That is, they're all poor and they're all fighting, you know, the top 1%. Um, and it seems that that's been a very successful, um, um, yeah, they've very successfully fractured those movements into different base needs um, and have successfully prevented people from kind of coming together under their shared, I guess, shared plight or their shared uh, concerns that they all share together. So that's why I, I worry a little bit about the capacity for social movements to be large and massive and targeted against the you know, so-called 1% or these mass corporations when we're very busy fighting each other based upon uh, very uh, lower thresholds of identity, I guess, and expression. And, but it's the nature of the beast these days. Um, mm. Politics is very complicated. Of course, the powerful will mobilize every resource that they can to divide us, um, to stop us from raising even these issues. Uh, and they'll try and silence the critics in places like Honduras and Brazil, they kill the critics. Um, so basically th that's part of the territory because if you speak truth to power, you're speaking truth to power. <laughs> it's gonna be hard. Uh, it, these are powerful, powerful forces. Um, it's not gonna be a, a walk in the park, you know? Uh, this is gonna require grit and determination and blood. Uh, because basically the powerful aren't going to give up their power, their wealth, their resources, their control without a fight. Uh, the science tells us what's wrong with the world today. The science also tells us the solution. Uh, the reason why we haven't adopted these solutions to things like climate change is because of the power and interest that stand in our way. The only way we're going to have a solution to many of the problems that we're experiencing is going to be to confront power directly. That's uncomfortable. It's going to hurt and it's, it's a very disturbing thing. Uh, but what's more disturbing is 20 years down the track from today, the world's going to be in an even worse position. It's not as though this is uh, some sort of new phenomenon. I remember the, the 1990 federal election campaign in Australia when Hawke was up against uh, Andrew Peacock. Graham Richardson was the environment minister at the time and the, the entire election was focused on uh, the environment. And I think uh, Hawke was, you know, his, his win at that election was credited on paying close attention to the environment. It was about the same time I got a, 
I was 16 at the time and I got a book from a birthday from uh, David Suzuki. And I remember, you know, the, yeah. the key thing that he was saying was that, well, with no environment, no economy. So yeah. then, and we're talking about the hole in the ozone layer. This is 1990. This is now yeah. acid rain and 31 years ago. Um, yeah. Yeah. So uh, perish the thought as to what's going to happen in another 31 years. If we don't do now more than we ought to have done back then. Uh, exactly. And uh, just to pick up on a, on a point there about jobs, the dinosaur jobs are disappearing. Hmm. So the dinosaur jobs are the jobs in the fossil fuel industries. They're disappearing. They're going. Uh, and that's reflected in the share market. It's reflected in, in the insurance companies and so on. They're disappearing. The, the job growth area is in the renewable industries. And that's where we need to be putting the money. And if we're going to put subsidies and we're going to, we need public control over these industries uh, because that's, that's where the future lies. Um, but, but the fact is, time's running out. Uh, things are urgent. Uh, as you said, in the that was 1990. There was the debates over the Franklin Dam and, and a whole bunch of other stuff that was galvanized the Australian public opinion. Things have got way worse. And, and we are distracted constantly by other kinds of things. Um, and we're distracted by artificial explanations for what's happening right before our eyes. So, for example, the Australian bushfires were branded by the Murdoch press as being due to arson. And we know, well, that's bullshit. Uh, it wasn't arson. It was change weather conditions and events and ultimately climate change. Um, so we have to be ever vigilant about the contrarians and their messages. But at the end of the day, uh, we are literally running out of time. And for people like myself, I'm older, I've had a, a nice life, but basically I'm thinking about my kids and my grandkids and, the, and, the, and their kids and grandkids. Uh, and if you have children today, you have to be concerned about what they're going to find in 20 years time. We've been quite pessimistic. I wonder whether there are any uh, silver linings to dark clouds. So, and uh, I'm thinking perhaps as one example, the very strong shift towards um, electric vehicles. Uh, you know, some countries are doing this far better than the others. The, the United Kingdom, for instance, um, uh, and other, other countries in Europe. Are there some silver clouds to dark, uh, linings to dark clouds there, Rob? There's stuff around the periphery. So many of the advanced industrialized countries now have renewable energies taking up a larger proportion of their total energy production. But at the end of the day, the global capitalist system is based upon consumption and commodities. So the more we keep producing stuff that actually we don't need, um, the more we're going to keep producing waste and using energy in inappropriate ways. Uh, and we have a global system where basically we might have some security in these countries, but if you go to, I mean, there are many countries in Africa today, for example, that have no vaccines. Uh, if you go to Bangladesh, they're immediately under threat of the rising oceans. If you go to the Pacific Islands, you know, this is an existential crisis today. So this is not the future, this is today. And, I, and I'm not being pessimistic, it, it's being realistic in saying that uh, there is urgency here, things have to change more rapidly. If we want to change, and we've seen it again, I'll just emphasize this. COVID has taught us one thing, and one of the things that, amongst other things, one of the things it's taught us is that if you've got the political will, you can do a, a whole lot of stuff really quickly. 
in Australia, we put up the shutters, we, we put into place a whole range of systems of, of lockdowns and so on, and we have protected this population in a way that's unheard of. Mm. Um, and New Zealand did the same, and a few other countries have done the same. And pumped out billions in social welfare and... Yeah, and, and uh, so we've got the example that when it comes to the crunch, we can act quickly. Uh, the problem we've got with environmental harm and specifically climate change and threats to biodiversity, the problem we have is that the urgency is at, at its highest degree. Um, and but isn't it the human condition to not act until you have to react, you know, until, you know, you are sinking in, in the oceans and until you do have cancer from smoking too much and until you do, you know what I mean? It's like always one step behind because we can never appreciate the full scale of our, of our actions until we have to deal with the repercussions. Yes, but no. And the mm. yes is that's part of our role. That's part of our, I mean, yes, in terms of the reality is that yeah, we, we tend to be, we lag behind the, re, the situations, but no, in the sense that our role as academics and activists and citizens and residents and fathers and mothers and so on, our role is to, to, to give people a sense of what needs to be done. Uh, there's a whole bunch of concrete practical things that we can actually do, that we can initiate, that we can start setting up in place. Now, it's like um, putting together an emergency plan uh, when stuff happens, if you don't have a plan, and this is part of the critique of the World Health Organization at the moment, is that the pandemic hit and they didn't have anything set up. Uh, Trump abolished, <laughs> you know, the pandemic task force that was setting up the emergency plans. Um, now, what we want to do is start setting up now, and that's part of our job, I think. Uh, what can we do now to preserve and protect our environments and the, the rural environments, the rural communities and so on, what kind of preventive things can we put into place now or that we can at least think of? And, and I think that's something that we, we can do and that's part of what our job is because as intellectuals, as academics, as researchers, um, we have an obligation, but also we have an opportunity and the capacity to do some of that forward planning. And mm -hmm. I think that's part of our job. Yeah, I think, uh... I think the power of the individual is a nice place to end. You know, the power of, of people to pull on their own, but then together uh, to enact some sort of change. Um, so I appreciate this conversation. Alistair, did you have anything else you wanted to touch on or? No, I think that was, uh, that was. Rob, did you have anything final, final closing uh, statements or anything you'd like to raise that we haven't? Well, we should, what can we finish with? Um, yeah. I told you an hour goes fast when you're having these conversations, eh? We can, we can close with a slogan, maybe. That's okay. good. Slogans always work. Okay. As the oceans rise, let the people so rise as well. <laughs> Strong one. Uh, appreciate it. Thanks for taking the time. I know how busy you are. It's, it's, it's fantastic to have uh, someone of your standing and magnitude on. We really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us here at the Centre uh, on this podcast. And um, yeah, thanks again. Okay, thank you.